Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Jeremy Galvin, who serves as the Vice President and Chief Development Officer at Iowa State University. Welcome, Jeremy. Hello. Thanks, Brent. And uh, I'm excited to be here with you today. Well, we have uh, gotten to know each other over the years, probably, I don't know, six or seven years. I think maybe we first met at a Big 12 development conference and uh, it's been fun to get to know you. My wife is an Iowa State uh, alumna. Uh, everybody in the podcast is tired of hearing me talk about Iowa at this point, but it didn't stop me from inviting you today. Uh, and while we've had the opportunity to connect periodically at conferences, I really don't know a lot about your story before your leadership role at Iowa State, which has been one of the really fun parts of this podcast. And my go-to question has been, uh, take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that Jeremy? Where was he? And what led him to Iowa State University? Okay. That's a long time ago, but I'm happy to, to go into those memory banks and, uh, and draw out some of those awesome experiences that I had. So, so Brent, I'm a native Iowan. I grew up on a farm in uh, northwest Iowa. And uh, my parents are still living on that farm today and uh, farming the land uh, that uh, my family has had for, uh, for, for decades. And, um, and so I came to Iowa State after you know, a wonderful small town Iowa experience where you had the chance, I think similar to you and you're growing up, to, you know, in, in a small town, you did everything. Um, you played in the band at halftime of a football game with your uh, football equipment with you in check. I did that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you have seen pictures, Brent, of your 4-H experiences showing hogs. Um, my father had a, a, a pharaoh to finish a hog operation and uh, had my fair share of uh, Cherokee County fairs and and all those wonderful experiences. And so I, uh, I, I had a great upbringing, um, you know, uh, was was slightly introduced to the world of philanthropy in a, in a common way through um, you know, through church, like many of us are uh, growing up. And uh, I had no idea what philanthropy meant, you know, truthfully. Um, you know, graduated uh, from Aurelia High School and moved on to Iowa State and uh, had a fantastic undergraduate experience here, uh, joined a fraternity, became a leader there, involved in all kinds of campus activities, um, had a great academic experience. Yes. Can I ask Jeremy just size of graduating class from high school and when you think about that group what were the paths i mean in my case it was maybe a third went to college a third worked the farm we had about a third that ended up um, being involved in the military in some capacity but uh was it sort of um always known to you that that you know college would be part of the the equation was that aspirational and you know just tell us more about kind of that that yeah. context yeah yeah I, uh, so out of our graduating class of 27, um, of which my wife and I were two of the 27, um, you know, uh, out of that 27, uh, about half of our class went on to, uh, to higher education opportunities. And the odd thing about, out of, out of about those 12 to 14 uh, classmates who went on to um, college, um, I think it was 10 of them came to Iowa State. You know, Iowa State's a pipeline for small farming communities. It was then, still is today. And uh, and so we had a lot of classmates that came here to ISU, which was an awesome experience and uh, a lot of fun. 
um, and help kind of ease that transition into this big place, this big university that we were all coming to at the time. So for folks who don't know as much about Iowa State or the land grant or the context, like why is that? Like why is Iowa State such an on-ramp for for students. I mean, that is just an incredible statistic. And I know that it's not uncommon that for some reason, while, you know, higher education might be a new experience for a lot of, you know, kids in those rural communities, Iowa State feels welcoming, it feels comfortable, it feels accessible. And, you know, that is part of what changes lives. But I'm just curious to kind of get your perspective, both as that junior in high school, but then also now obviously doing the work that you do. Yeah, yeah. So I think that the one thing that's unique about, uh, you know, Iowa State University, but also it's land grant schools in general, is that affordability and accessibility to all. Uh, and, uh, you know, really it's our mission here at Iowa State to welcome students um, of, of various backgrounds, of various communities, um, of different experiences, students who have achieved academically and students who are going to be challenged when they come here academically because of the communities that they come from and welcoming them and bringing them here to our community at Iowa State and putting all of that together uh, here at, at ISU and mixing those students up and learning from one another and sharing, engaging in those experiences. And uh, it gets them ready for the real world, for, for life. And because uh, that's what we're all experiencing now, uh, post-college. And I was one of them. I was a first-generation student um, coming out of high school. Uh, my parents definitely encouraged me to go, um, but they, um, they didn't know what I was getting into and what those experiences would be like. And so what I find quite interesting is the high percentage of students yet to this day that are coming to our colleges and universities as first-gen. And... Uh, and, and that's definitely something that we are aware of here at the foundation um, and, and, and some, some work that we do on behalf of the university to attract those first-gen students. So that's kind of the experience that I had. I love it. And so you are studying elementary education, uh, presumably yeah. wanting to be a teacher at that point in your life. And then along the way, by way of your um, Greek experience, kind of pivoted into this world of philanthropy. Yes, that's exactly right, right? Um, so my senior year as student taught, um, like all uh, education uh, majors do, um, but before I student taught, I had already secured a job. Um, and so it was the first semester of my senior year. Um, I had never flown before, never traveled outside of a, out of, outside of a state that borders Iowa. Um, and I had made some great connections and done some networking, great friends, with um, individuals who work for my fraternity's national headquarters, Pi Kappa Phi fraternity. Uh, their office is located in Charlotte, North Carolina. They flew me out there. They offered me a job on the spot. I took it and then called back and said, mom, dad, this is what I'm going to do. And they, uh, they had no idea. And I don't still think they know today what I really did during that fraternity uh, employment experience because it's very unique. I know there's a lot of people who have had that opportunity. And um, so I did. I graduated from ISU. I pivoted in my career. I went from thinking I was going to be a teacher and a coach to being a nonprofit uh, lifer and uh, had that first experience with a small nonprofit in Charlotte. Thought I'd be there for one year as a traveling leadership consultant. Um, that first year, I traveled and visited our chapters 
all the way from North Dakota down to Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, all by car before MapQuest, before cell phones, and um, and had just an absolutely wonderful experience meeting with our undergraduate leaders, university administrators, and, uh, and alumni of the fraternity. I love this. I recently uh, had the opportunity to host Rod Kirsch, who is a consultant at GGNA, who went to the University of North Dakota, and he had a very similar kind of initial um, career path. And it strikes me that it was also similar to, to yours in that you went from basically like Cherokee County to Ames being your life ex, you know, experience to all of a sudden having an opportunity to experience different states, campuses, cultures, accents, you name it, uh, which on one hand could be overwhelming or on the other is maybe exhilarating. I mean, I just kind of love to kind of get like that, like what, what that experience was to just sort of immediately become, you know, to go from like, let's be honest, like a pretty sheltered upbringing to that kind of exposure. It opened my world up to a whole new set of opportunities. And uh, I'm so thankful. And, 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 uh, you know, my, my boss at that time, the CEO of Pike Epify, um, he's retiring this summer, and I'm going to be able to have the chance to go to Tampa here in two weeks to uh, attend his retirement reception at our convention. And I tell I tell Mark uh, Timmies every day that I get the chance to talk to him how thankful I am for really the fraternity um, allowing me to join way back in 1992, but giving me my, giving me my first employment experience, um, the the people that I met, the networking that I did. Uh, were just impactful. And, you know, Brent, to kind of tie that story into where I am today. So um, after spending seven years uh, at the fraternity headquarters, uh, my uh, our oldest daughter was born in Charlotte. And uh, within six months, we realized that uh, we wanted to raise our kids around family. And so I started networking with people and uh, we thought we'd, be, we'd get back to Chicago or Kansas City, Minneapolis, um, but one of the individuals that I that I uh, networked with is a mentor of mine, um, and I've known him since I was 18 years old. And uh, at the time, um, this individual, uh, Kelly, uh, said to me, have you ever thought about working for the ISU Foundation? And I said, no, but how, how can I get connected? I knew that we had a foundation when I was in school um, here. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know anything really about scholarships or faculty support at the time. And Kelly took my resume and gave it uh, to the foundation. Um, uh, he was the board chair at the time, so that definitely worked to my advantage. Um, but he helped me get in the door here. And uh, in 2003, I started my career here at the ISU Foundation. I love that. And, you know, what strikes me about your career and there, you know, there's sort of two different, I think, profiles that I've come to have familiarity with by way of our work, but then certainly through th this podcast is there are people who, um, you know, yesterday I interviewed Armin Afsahi, who's the Dean of Development at, at Harvard's Faculty uh, uh, of Arts and Sciences. And um, he had, you know, started in San Diego and then, you know, has made his way to Georgetown and then made his way back to San Diego and then over here and, you know, now at Harvard and and each you know, step of the way, more responsibility, more opportunity. Um, and then there are a handful of people like you, um, uh, Brad Bundy at Miami University comes to mind as another example where 
you, you've committed to the organization, you know, in your case, it's obviously it's your alma mater. Um, and you've had the opportunity to really start in that, you know, let's call it entry level almost, or, you know, maybe early career role. Um, and then basically grow up, right. As a, as a person, right. As a leader. Um, and then ultimately, you know, elevate into the chief development officer role. Um, I would actually love to know more about those, like, you know, Jeremy as associate director of development, like some of those early years, because, you know, you were at a point then where I doubt you knew that almost 20 years later, you'd be in the seat that you're in where you're, you know, feeling it out and you've got a young family and, you know, just trying to, right, you know, get, get established at that point in your career. What are some of the memories where you started to, I don't know, feel like, wow, this is like, I love this work. Like this could be it. Yeah. 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 You know, Brent, I, I started my first job. Um, the first job that I actually interviewed, I didn't get with the ISU foundation. I, uh, I interviewed to be the director of the phone center, uh, here at the foundation. I did not get that job. Uh, and, uh, they told me to hold out for a little bit. There might be another opening coming up, which I did. Uh, I applied and I was hired to be the associate, uh, director of development. Uh, and I was focused so like on week one. What, what does that look like? You know, month one, yeah. Welcome. Here you go. What 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 were you yeah. equipped with? What was the charter? Yeah, yeah. So I I was in charge, or I wasn't in charge of, but I was given a uh, uh, a handful of prospective donors who we thought had the ability to make gifts between twenty five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And uh, I was assigned to prospects in that uh, segment who were either business alums from the College of Business or had student affairs. We thought interest at the time. And uh, I, uh, during that 18 months in that role, um, under, at the time, our director of annual and special gifts, um, my memory of it is, is I went through the process, called a bunch of people, um, went and saw a few of them, mainly a lot of work over the phone, uh, via email at that time, but kind of stumbled across that very first um, seven-figure gift, deferred gift. Where somebody had us in their estate plans and we didn't know about it and it took a phone call all it took was a phone call to somebody in north carolina i remember it vividly to get that uh, gift documented and uh, that's what really gave me that first taste into the world of of fundraising i thought you were going to say it was your deep north carolina knowledge that sealed the deal yeah. but sounds yeah. like it was uh teed up matter be in the right place at the right time yeah and look we hear these stories and it must kind of I mean, it kind of drives us crazy. It must drive you crazy to just think about how many of those are still out there. Absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, on a weekly or monthly or yearly basis, you all, you know, have those sorts of just diamonds in the rough um, materialized in, in some form or fashion. But, uh, but I think it's, it's such a good reminder that um, Iowa State was Iowa State. The foundation was the foundation. They, whoever that constituent was, was getting the broad-based marketing and so forth. But the real difference was human-to-human interaction. Yeah. You know, and, and one phone call from a real person to a real person. And, and for all the work that we do around, you know, automation and, you know, what, whatever you want to call it just having that human to human connection to this day, like today there are development officers doing what you did who are uncovering opportunities like that, basically hidden in plain sight. Absolutely. And, 
you know, I think, you know, you hit on something there, Brent, that, that I, that I stress with our team here, my colleagues, and that human human interaction is still pivotal. It is still key to what we do. Um, no doubt about it. Our industry needs to move in a direction where we're embracing data and we're embracing digitalization. Uh, you know, we here at the foundation, the Iowa State Foundation are um, in the process of implementing a new CRM. And we've got all kinds of uh, technology things that we're throwing out there for our staff to embrace. And we're learning and trying new things. And we hope one day to really be able to treat um, our donors that are at the base of that pyramid, right? That we all work within uh, those donors that are in our base marketplace treat them like Amazon treats their customers. And that's our goal. Um, it's going to take some time for us to get there, but that's going to uncover and engage more of those hidden gems, those people out there that we just don't have time right now to get to because there's more There's more of those individuals that have Iowa State and, and their respective institutions and charities and organizations in their wills, in their trusts, in their in their in their estate plans, um, or want to make a large cash gift, they've just never been asked. And um, but what I still uh, still firmly believe is that that personal interaction will be critical um, for us moving forward, and uh, we can't lose sight of that. I agree, and you know I'd be lying if I if I didn't feel uh, you know we've certainly been out there on the circuit talking about the Amazon type experience, but but there are times that I wonder if maybe we pivoted to talk about that too much because the reality is like, I buy, you know, we buy stuff from Amazon and most of that stuff is going to be in a, let's call it sub $500 price point, right? Maybe sub $1,000 price point. And when you're talking about like mid-level planned giving, you know, it's sort of that middle ground where I feel like it's going to take more than like the touchless, awesome, you know, e-commerce experience to actually inspire somebody with this ultimate discretionary purchase that is philanthropy. And, and that's where it's like, how do we leverage all of the data and the insights, but then really ensure that that drives like, more human to human connection, the same way that you were as a road warrior, you know, earlier in your career. Um, and I, and I also feel really optimistic, you know, coming out of the pandemic. And, I, and I'd love to get your thought on this, where um, there was such a forced adoption of technology where, you know, you and I are communicating in this way, totally seamlessly that even three years ago might've been a little bit, you know, what Zoom or do I have that installed? Or, you know, it's just amazing to think about how far we've come in that short period. But what does that mean as it relates to how we might personalize one-to-one -one relationship building deeper into the giving pyramid without just relying on 100-person portfolios and, you know, fairly inefficient travel, for example. And so I know there's sort of a tension right now because on one hand, we're like, we can finally travel again. Like, let's get back out there and see people but at the same time, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well. It's been a reminder of just like how much of a distraction travel is and like how sort of little you can accomplish when you yeah. are physically on the plane and doing the layover and doing the meeting versus like having nine Zoom meetings scheduled throughout the day. So yeah. would, would love just your perspective on the pros and cons of this dynamic. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no doubt, about it. no doubt about it. Travel is interesting these days and harder and harder and, and 
you know, unfortunate stories that we all hear from our colleagues and, and family and friends and that. Um, uh, but we're going to have to live through it. We're going to have to get through it because what we do on an individual basis with our donors is absolutely critical. Um, Brett, my, my kind of take on, um, on all the data and all of that uh, work that our organizations are doing at the base, um, it's important. We've got to do it. We have to invest in those areas, in our CRMs, in our engagement opportunities, et cetera, because what it will do for us is it will speed up the rate of which we identify what those donors are really and truly interested in. It will give us real-time data by watching their tendencies, by watching their, 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 their clicks on what they're most interested in reading or seeing or watching. But just like Amazon is doing, when you and I go on there to look at different products, it's probably less about what we're buying and more about what we're clicking on and exploring. And then they're sending us messages leading us to the product that we want. And, um, and I think that that's what, we're, that's what our long-term goal is, is that we need to be able to put more information, more stories, more, um, more examples of how donors can, um, how prospective donors uh, can interact and engage with Iowa State University. And then we need to watch those movements um, so that then our prospect development team and eventually our development officers are giving more accurate data at a faster rate to identify who it is they need to go see um, versus relying on you know, six personal visits with that individual over three years to feel them out, to understand those interests, and then make the ask. Let's see if we can if we can shorten that cultivation cycle through some of the digitalization work that we're doing. I love that, and and I feel like it's such a uh, you know it's such a clear example where we have to connect engagement and philanthropy. And it sounds cliche to say it, but but I mean, we have to start strategically with why are we doing engagement in the first place? How can we be more intentional about the engagement and how do we map the engagement strategies to what we're fundraising for so that as people are raising their hands digitally, we can quickly qualify them and assign them and get the relationship one-to-one work that you know being done, whether that happens in person um, or, or remotely. It's like, for example, uh, um, Iowa State was uh, Ames was just named one of the most livable college towns in America. Uh, hundreds of people have commented, responded, expressed positivity around that. Uh, people are pouring their hearts out about that content. That is a signal of interest. Now, does it mean that they're going to donate to you know the municipality of Ames? No, but it's a signal that they're paying attention, they care, and then you know at the same time, there's so much of that interaction. You can't go chasing every single click, right? Uh, right. And so how do you then go from 1,000 down to 100, down to 10, who should be getting followed up with today or tomorrow um, in, in a more real-time fashion? And, and I think you know that is absolutely where we need to go as, as a sector. And I think it's, it's um, going to accelerate the authentic one-to-one relationship building, even if behind the scenes, there's a lot of data and automation at play. You know, Brent, I'm gonna, I want to mention one other quick thing um, and really the challenge then that, that uh, I feel like we are experiencing and I don't think our organization is alone in this is 
as you build infrastructure to become more digitally oriented, as you look at the data and you try to align it to where it will impact your major gift officers, um, one of the things that we are really focusing on is getting our entire staff to trust that process, to trust the data, and to understand um, how that will bring change to their world as a major gift officer and uh, go about doing their work differently. Um, it's almost like a reskilling of what a major gift officer will be doing in certain ways. Because before, when I was in that role, it was left up to me to look at reports and to look at, look at different data points and to try to get to that stage. And it would take me a long time to do that. My skills were going down on the road, being a road warrior and meeting face-to-face -face with donors. It wasn't analyzing all this information. And we still have trained our major gift officers in that way. And now we're having to find ourselves um, creating new training op opportunities and mechanisms, building confidence in those processes and reskilling to a certain extent so that those people who are really good out on the road um, representing our institution can do more of that. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, you probably didn't think about it this way, but as that frontline professional, you're getting a snapshot view and you're basically building an algorithm in your head. And so it's like, how do we go from like the gut feel algorithmic, you know, snapshot of development officers around the country to an actual algorithm that drives behavior that points people in the right direction and then allows that frontline person to do what it is they're truly best at. But it, it does mean taking a bit of a leap of faith to really trusting the data and the process and giving up some of that maybe control um, or judgment and, and focusing more on the actual relationship building. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. It's an exciting, it's an exciting time, uh, a new world for us. I wanted to ask you, so one of our questions in prep is, you know, what's something that you've worked on that you're proud of? You just did a massive comprehensive campaign. All right. Yeah. And I, I certainly want to give you an opportunity to sort of share your perspective on that. But you also said in the first year out of a campaign, we just completed our third highest fundraising year in the history of the foundation, which then makes me want to ask you this question, which is, do campaigns even matter? If you can achieve a historic number like that, not in a campaign. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, a lot to a lot to unpack there. So yes, first of all, um, a year ago, so it would have been June thirtieth of twenty twenty one, right in the middle of the pandemic, we wrapped up our nine year uh, one point five billion dollar campaign, and we raised one point five six billion dollars. Um, and uh, nine years was a little bit longer than we thought. Uh, and it was originally an eight year, $1.1 billion campaign, but we hit 1.1 two years early. And therefore our, our campaign cabinet decided to increase the goal to 1.5 billion and gave us an extra year to hit it. And um, uh, little did we know that a pandemic would arrive and, uh, and whatnot, but we crossed the finish line a little over a year ago and had tremendous success with that campaign. And we're extremely proud of that. Um, you know, as is the case with campaigns, what you want that campaign to do is to really raise the bar 
each and every year of what it is that you're bringing in for fundraising production. And then our goal was, is that first year out of the campaign to sustain that level so that we did not see a dip in fundraising production. And uh, we were able to do that uh, the first year out of the campaign. And in fact, as you noted, we hit the third best fundraising year in history. Uh, and so we're really excited about what fiscal year 22 that we just wrapped up here about uh, two and a half weeks ago, what, uh, what it did, the impact that it made on our university, the tremendous support of our, of our very loyal donors. And it was a phenomenal year. I guess part of my question is, and congratulations on that to you and the entire team. I know a lot of folks are listening. Um, did the donors, did donors care if you're in a campaign or not? Because I think part of, right, I guess my understanding of, of the point of the campaign, it's like one to sort of rally a community, right? Create a forcing function and time bound, you know, constraints with clear goals. Um, it can be a way to marshal resources. Um, do donors care? Like, yeah. was it a different conversation in fiscal year 22, not being in a campaign as it would have been in fiscal 21, for example. Yeah, Brent, I, I, I truly believe that there's different segments of our donors that sit anywhere in that continuum of is a can't, what, what value does a campaign bring, positive or, uh, or, or no impact at all, right? I think that for our, our close volunteer family, um, those that engage with us, that know what we're doing, our board, our governors, our key volunteers to the university, when they hear campaign messaging, um, and they understand from their, from their uh, deans, the directors of various programs on campus, the provost, the president, when there's a message around it, when there's a marketing campaign around the vision of the institution with aligned fundraising priorities, and that's going to those close volunteers who are our top donors in many cases, a campaign can influence them on when they give. But that's a small segment of the people that we work with. And because, many, I mean, in a certain regard, it all, I mean, they're your investors, right? And so yes. it's almost like, what is our investor presentation? Like, what is the vision, the mission? You could invest your capital in a bunch of different ways, commercially or philanthropically. Here's why now is the time to invest with us. Yes. Those are people that want to see alignment. They want to see that things are, 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 are really lining up to um, lead to university, the university's vision being successful because they're interested in the internal processes of the institution and the organization. But there is a larger segmentation of our donor base who will give to the institution uh, regardless of if you're in a campaign or not because A, they're passionate about it B, our needs align with their philanthropic interests, and C, for them, now is the right time. And, and, and thus, the year that we just wrapped up, for many um, who, who made some transformational investments, last year was the right time, regardless if we were in a campaign or not. And so to your question, uh, what value do campaigns bring? I think they bring extreme value to a university um, when uh, there might be a new strategic plan, there might be uh, uh, priorities that are identified within the colleges or the departments. Um, and then we need to develop a marketing campaign around those priorities that then turn into 
funding opportunities for donors. But the fact is, is that now we're doing that each and every year. And that's because our strategic plan for our foundation really has that mapped out for the next uh, for the next 10 years. And we've got aggressive fundraising growth goals laid out for the next 10 years, um, regardless of if we go into a campaign or not. Uh, and so um, we're going to see that fundraising growth because the university needs it. Uh, the university has identified what their priorities are, what their needs are going to be. Um, and then we've got to see increasing revenue being generated by our donors to meet those goals. And so a campaign's important, but more importantly is to have that vision as a foundation and as an organization that's going to lead to the growth of, that our campus partners are going to need to have. Yeah, we've talked, uh, actually our first podcast guest ever was John Morris. And John talked a lot about the idea of shifting from capital campaigns to capital sprints where it's hard to predict, you know, eight years from now, what the world might entail. So who are we to say in 2022, what the campaign through 2030, you know, could look like, and then things like the pandemic reinforce the fact that you can't really uh, know what the future entails. And, and, and so how do you kind of maintain agility? You know, how can you stay nimble uh, while still having a big vision that attracts the sort of transformational investment that you need. Well, Brenda, I think that one of the things that when you go through a campaign planning exercise, I think that we, we a lot of times, and we're guilty of it here, you get caught up in that big number. You know, how do I get, first it was, how do I get to a billion? Now it's, how do I get to two and a half billion dollars? And that's what attracts the attention publicly you know, um, across the nation, it makes the headlines, right? And, and, you know, more or less, what we should probably be focused on more is what are those dollars that are being expended, that are being spent by our campus partners um, that's, that's as a result of philanthropic support? And because uh, those are the dollars that are going to work to impact our students, to impact our faculty, to build the buildings, remodel the facilities, buy the equipment, and it's not about raising 1.5 billion, but instead it's about how are those dollars going to work? Yeah, it's sort of like, um, you know, Iowa State launches $84 million capital sprint, probably yeah. doesn't get the big headlines. And, and you know, in, in a state context, like PR does matter, right? So it's sort it of like, how do you create that that big story that's going to provide additional air cover and support um, while, you know, while, while acknowledging the billion, I mean, maybe, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe someday we uh, start framing ca capital campaigns by way of, you know, students, uh, students impacted, you know, yeah. this campaign will, you know, the, this is the campaign for 50,000 scholarships or something like that instead of, um, you know, the the hard dollars, who yeah, knows? Yeah. You know, Brent, I'll just mention one other thing that, uh, you know, when you talk about big time successes and some of the things that uh, we've accomplished here, and, and many organizations have done this, but one of the things that I'm, I'm proud of, and we talked about this at the Big 12 Development Conference, um, you know, like everyone, uh, you know, when, when the pandemic hit, uh, you, we worked so feverishly and quickly to, to move, you know, um, you know, anywhere from 120 to 140 people from their offices to their homes, 
setting them up with equipment and technology and, and resources, et cetera. And then as people have kind of come back into the fold, uh, you know, we've implemented a policy and, and kind of a culture here where uh, we realize that we need to meet people where they are today. Um, and uh, our leadership, our board has given us um, a tremendous support to really implement a model where uh, we have employees that are working full-time remote. Uh, we have folks that are in Arkansas, in Ohio, in Arizona, in the Quad Cities, and they're, and they're there full-time. Uh, and we see them uh, occasionally and periodically come back to campus for various things, or when our staff's on the road, we know we have a hub there. Um, we have a segment of our, of our staff that are, that are hybrid, uh, who are working, um, you know, some type of a, of a ratio of 50-50, of let's say, uh, from their office at their home uh, or their office here at the, uh, in Ames, Iowa. And then we have some of us who are here in the community who are here, um, you know, five days a week like we were before. And, um, you know, it's, 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 we're feeling the benefits of this yet. Uh, we call it an experiment. We're, we're not um, 100% uh, on board with this being a long-term, you know, uh, strategy that we're on board with for the next 25 years, but it's working right now. And uh, we're excited about it. It's giving our, our staff an opportunity to um, where we're able to meet them where they are and uh, give them some flexibility um, and, uh, and a lot of trust to go out there and do their jobs. And what's exciting is that, uh, you know, last fiscal year, we had the results that we did in this type of a work environment. I love it, Jeremy, but you make it sound so easy. Like I'm hearing from so many of your peers or more likely I'm hearing from staff who are saying, I'm so frustrated with the hardline approach to return to office that is being taken here, you just made such a compelling case and you must have, you know, peers in your network where you guys are riffing on this and, and folks are, are talking about it. Why has that been doable at Iowa State and what are you hearing from your peers that is holding other universities back from leaning into what feels like such an obvious trend, not necessarily for the entire campus. But when you look at where the constituency of advancement lives, it is not on campus. So why do we all need to be on campus? What are you hearing from your yeah. peers? Well, I think it first started with us, with our development officers. And, and we all know that if you're a front-facing road warrior, um, if you're in your office, you're not doing your job, right? And so we've all, and, and we all know this in our industry, that um, if you're a successful major gift officer, you're out, you're out on the road. And you can do your work um, from wherever you are. And, uh, and so for us, we use that as a model to say, well, why, why is it that our donor relations staff has to be locked into um, Ames, Iowa? Or why do our human resources colleagues need to be here? And, and, and on, on throughout the organizational structure, and, and definitely it was met with some growing pains. We had challenges. We've worked through, um, you know, some, some just how do you, how do you have those hallway conversations that that uh, that allow you to get to know your colleagues and whatnot? And we still have struggles with that, right? And um, but but um, while there have been struggles, the positives far outweigh the challenges that we experience from time to time with that. And so we're pivoting. So you know, for the first time, we're bringing um, and the organization is covering the cost of everyone coming back to campus on August twenty third for a, a foundation uh, retreat. 
And it'll be the first time since pre-pandemic that we've had all of our staff members back here um, uh, for a one-day seminar, uh, a workshop. And there'll be some some fun involved. There'll be some get to know you. Uh, a lot of colleagues that we've met only via virtual um, uh, engagements such as this that we'll see first time uh, in person. Um, but you know, we felt like that we needed to do this in order to retain uh, employees through the pandemic and even now post pandemic, as well as attract top talent. Right. Um, I think it's, I mean, I, I feel like we're such kindred spirits. Literally, immediately before we got on this podcast, I was speaking with our uh, uh, chief people officer about our first full team retreat. Uh, and we've gone through, you know, a combination with thank you. We just, uh, merge uh, with pledge mine when we're we're going through a lot of change as well uh, and so we're meeting so many people in a fully remote capacity uh, which honestly has been I think way more efficient than if we were like in headquarters up in Boston and then you, you know there's sort of uh, where does everybody else fit in the organization so it's definitely been good kind of uh, I don't know more of an equal playing field um, when you're operating in a more remote context but we're going to bring everybody together in mid mid September, uh, which we're all super excited about. Sounds very similar to what you're describing, and I I think it's going to be a massive talent advantage. And I am curious to see by 2030, you know, what does this mean? Like, what might the Iowa State Foundation look like in 2030 um, as you experiment, pilot, test, succeed? You've got over a thousand constituents in California, for example. Maybe someday. Right you've got coverage, you know, in the market of California, the same way that companies that are based in Ames yeah. have professionals embedded in their core markets throughout the country and throughout the world. Who knows where it ends up? That's right. That's right. So no doubt about it, Brent, it's important for our colleagues to get back here, to come back to campus, to experience what Iowa State University is about. And we are working to do that. Um, on a team basis or an individual basis, uh, they have to feel what it means to be a cyclone, for example. Um, uh, but also then you can let them go and trust um, and, and, and know that they're going to do the work that they should be doing, um, you know, based on culture and accountability. And, and that's what we're really stressing with our, with our people leaders right now. I love it. Well, I cannot wait to continue to learn as, as you um, really are, are, I think, at the forefront. And uh, I feel like um, a lot of other leaders will be looking to your experience to potentially make the case for additional flexibility. And uh, I do think it's ironic. I mean, it, you know, I've talked to countless uh, leaders who don't have the flexibility that you have right now who are saying, yeah, for a, you know decades, we said, get out of the office. And now that people are out of the office, we're saying, get back to the office. And, uh, and hopefully this all settles out in a good spot. One of our yeah. other favorite questions to ask is, um, you know, inevitably, right. You work on billions of dollars of philanthropy and hundreds of thousands, millions of gifts, probably over your career all in, um, which ones stand out. And I thought when I asked you that question, you'd say something like Brent, I cannot wait to tell you, about a first of its kind $93 million gift with a private company providing an equity stake to Iowa State University. But that wasn't your response, although I know it was very memorable. Instead, you wanted to share a perspective on actually a modest gift 
with an elderly couple who late in life um, endowed a scholarship. And, and I'd love to know why you picked that story. Tell yeah. me more about it. Yeah. You know, it, no, no doubt about it, those transformational gifts that our institutions receive and the opportunity to work on those with a donor, um, with your campus colleagues to uh, talk about structure, endowment, where the money is going to go. Those are exhilarating. They're fun. They're exciting. Uh, and, and, and that's what we all hope to be able to spend our time doing. Uh, but for me, some of the most memorable experiences have been working with those who are just getting their start in philanthropy. Um, and the one that I that I spoke to you about, uh, you know, in our communication before this was an elderly couple, and this was their really their first gift, in their eyes, their first major gift to Iowa State. And when I got the chance to see them, they had gone pretty much unheard. We didn't know them until they were in their 80s, and they wanted to make a gift. It was a twenty-five thousand dollar endowment, which was our minimum level at that time. And at that stage in their life, they were comfortable in doing that. And um, they added a little bit more over uh, the next three, four, five years. And uh, it was for a scholarship endowment. And we were able to uh, connect them with their scholarship recipients a couple of times, either through written correspondence uh, or a phone call. Um, but this was before we were really using virtual meetings and all of that. And, um, and we didn't get the chance to interact with them for very long because they were at the later stages of life. But the joy that uh, those undergraduate students brought to this couple, um, just simply through general correspondence and a phone call, was just so touching. And uh, they got to meet our dean at the time, and we'd take the dean to go see them. And just those engagements uh, in stewarding that, that small endowment um, was just so rewarding to see. And, uh, you know, another example that I'll provide that, that stands out in my mind is on the opposite end of that life spectrum. And I had the opportunity to work with a donor who was in his mid-20s at the time, and he established uh, an expendable scholarship in honor of his parents. And um, uh, we got to go through the, uh, you know, the scholarship criteria uh, setting process. And, you know, this individual, he set up the scholarship to model his parents and the upbringing that he had. And then pretty soon he got his parents involved when the students were um, uh, honored at a banquet. And that led to this expendable scholarship being endowed. And then the entire family was getting involved in the scholarship. And those are the things, th that's why we do what we do. Um, it's, it's people, it's families coming together in the spirit of philanthropy to make an impact on those who need it. I love that, Jeremy. And, uh, you know, I, I think the example you shared around, you know, the elderly couple um, and the fulfilling experiences that you guys were able to deliver for them, connecting them with students, taking the Dean to seeing them, you know, that is examples where I think the, the digital transformation we've gone through largely pushed on us by the pandemic is going to create opportunities to take the dean to people without the logistics, the cost, the time that it actually required to physically take the dean. And so it's like, how do we lean into quick, you know, the dean and the donors are now a Zoom link away forever. Yeah. How do we coordinate the appropriate, you know, if the dean could do 10 trips a year, 
well, maybe they can do a hundred Zoom conversations a year times the number of deans. And now all of a sudden you went from this very sliver of the giving pyramid, getting that level of attention to maybe five or 10 Xing it at a far lower cost. And I, I don't know that anybody has that full stewardship kind of assembly line humming just yet, but we are seeing flashes of greatness building on the traditional approaches that are so inspiring as you've described, but modified for this digital context. Yep. So, you know, my Dean colleagues uh, are so wonderful here. And uh, what they're going to hear us talk about is, is we still need to have them make those five to 10 trips each year, but they're going to be more strategic. They're going to be, um, they're going to be focused on the people that they really need to be focused. And then what I hope is that our, our, uh, our unit leads in the colleges on our development staff are loading them up, like you said, with 10 Zoom calls within three to four hours, just you know, seeing as many people as they can. And think about the volume of increased donor action, that donor yes. interaction that we've just yes. created. There. We're not giving away that valuable in-person time, right. but we're growing it through efficiencies and, and whatnot. Or maybe it's the you know, the the parlor dinner meets, you know, virtual conversation where it's now, you know, there's certain people that get a one-on-one -on -one Zoom with the dean who never would have gotten the the trip from the dean. Yep. And then there's another subset of people who can get the, you know, 10-person small group engagement that feels intimate that they never would have been able to get before. So those are the examples where we're, we're seeing so much potential. I mean, we, we have... Um, you know, partners who are who are setting up rules, for example, um, every every donation above X level with Y designation, well, in that case, the dean's going to make a quick 60 second iPhone video and a thank you goes out where they're not even meeting anybody at all. So there's just these kind of different gradients of personalization that are possible now that um, I think are going to be really meaningful and just radically more efficient than what we've been able to do in the past. But it takes coordination and systems and the deans obviously have to adapt to, you know, some of these new new approaches, but but it sounds like you've got some good partners in that regard. And Brent, I'll quickly add, I believe that our donors, A, they deserve it, and B, they, they are going to be moving to a, uh, um, we're moving to an era where they're gonna expect it in order to continue to give uh, to our institution. So we all know that we want to show ROI and impact to our highest level of donors. And we do a very good job across our industry in showing that on a one-on-one -on -one basis, such as what I've described here in a couple of examples with you, but donors at all levels are gonna wanna see that ROI. And we're gonna have to do a better job of showing that um, in how we communicate to large segments of donors who are giving to scholarships. Um, and we have to do that better. I do have to ask you, so you are one of the leaders who has been involved in accepting an equity stake in a company, right? People are used to estate gifts and land gifts and, you know, different unique gifts. Um, I am curious, you can provide like the quick background on the gift, but really I'm more interested in having gone through that experience, has it changed how you all think about introducing the possibilities of philanthropy to other individuals who are private company holders, who in the past we might've said, 
well, until there's a liquidity event or until they sell the business, we're in a bit of a holding pattern. And I'm also curious what conversations maybe you had with other peers around the industry where maybe this light bulbs went off where it said, wait a second, maybe we don't have to wait. And there are new ways to structure things, recognizing there's complexities with taking on an equity stake in an illiquid private company. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we we were, uh, the ISU Foundation and Iowa State University was in a wonderful situation when an anonymous donor approached us about gifting to us uh, majority uh, majority ownership of, of the private company that he owned. Uh, and, uh, and so we accepted uh, that as a gift and we held on to the majority shares uh, for a period of time until um, we went to market uh, with this company and we ended up selling it for much more than what we thought we would. Um, you had mentioned 93 million was the assessed value of our shares of this company. And um, it ended up being in the neighborhood of 160 million that we received once the sale was complete. Wow. And it was uh, an anonymous gift. Um, and uh, an unrestricted endowment for the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Uh, and so just making a tremendous impact. What has it done for us? How has it changed our world? Um, well, first of all, it, it allowed us to enter into the world of transformational gifts of this size. And uh, what that gift has done for our university and our organization, our endowment um, has just been um, uh, phenomenal. And it set us on a trajectory to where we now know that in the next 10 years, we have projected that we need to close, um, we need to have another one or two gifts of this magnitude and size in order for our organization to meet the needs of Iowa State University. So we're developing strategy on how we can go out and, uh, and be successful in the world of transformational gifts. And what we've done is, is we've built a model around the idea of uh, taking ownership of, of private firms, such as uh, the one that we're speaking of now. And um, we're, we're marketing our donor base based on information that we have, um, data that we have of who we should be targeting for this type of, uh, of, of stories um, and, and mechanisms to do this and training our development officers to ask the right questions um, in their normal work with individual donors. Um, and so um, we've developed the infrastructure uh, to be able to handle this uh, moving forward. And, um, you know, peers, I would say, Brent, that the people that inspired us to do this was our volunteers. It was, um, at the time, members of our board of directors who um, live in this world of, of, of equity stake and companies and encouraged us to take this risk. Uh, and it definitely was a risk that we took. And uh, 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 we may not have the same result in the next one that we accept, uh, but we know that, uh, that uh, we're getting better at this um, in identifying the right companies, the right individuals to talk to. And whether it's a $5 million equity stake in a company or it's a $500 million equity stake, they're all important. And, and really what we're trying to do is work with donors, work with individuals who own companies at varying levels and helping them understand how we can help them 
in situations that are similar to this individual who did not, um, whose first plan of what he was going to do in a succession planning world didn't work out. And then he came to us and said, what about this opportunity? And it worked out. I love it. Congratulations. And I appreciate the kind of uh, uh, conclusion to the story because I didn't realize uh, how, how truly uh, extraordinary the, the ultimate outcome was. Um, we're at time, Jeremy. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've already talked about the progressive uh, approach you all are taking from a talent perspective as it relates to remote and flexible work. I hope it's an amazing gathering on August 23rd. Uh, but to that end, are you hiring? And if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, we are. So we are we are hiring. Um, we have a number of positions that we've opened up in this new fiscal year that we've just started uh, that are new to our organization. We're kind of in a growth mode of, uh, of building our staff. We've gone from an organization of around 80 to 90 employees um, about 10 years ago. And uh, we're right now um, at 150-ish, and we look to add about 10 to 15 more positions in the coming year. And these new positions are around areas that we've identified in our strategic plan where uh, where growth, where are areas that we anticipate growth coming to the foundation and to our campus partners. And so look me up on LinkedIn, um, ISU Foundation website, my contact information is there. Happy to talk to anyone who would uh, love to uh, live uh, and, and be a part of our, our community. Well, Jeremy, thanks for taking us on the journey from uh, Cherokee County to today. I really appreciate it and, and appreciate the work that you do uh, and look forward to uh, catching up here in the near future. Um, best wishes. Thanks again for your time. And with that, Brent signing off with today's guest, Jeremy Galvin, Vice President and Chief Development Officer at the Iowa State University Foundation. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Brent.